Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this 26th reading with Book 3, Chapter 5, Section 5. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail art catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 5. Moreover, to say nothing of these abominations, who taught the Pope to enclose the grace of Jesus Christ in lead and parchment, grace which the Lord is pleased to dispense by the word of the gospel. Undoubtedly, either the gospel of God or indulgences must be false that Christ is offered to us in the gospel with all the abundance of heavenly blessings, with all his merits, all his righteousness, wisdom, and grace. Without exception, Paul bears witness when he says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Unquote, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. And what is meant by the fellowship? Greek word. Chi, Omicron, Iota, Nu, Omega, Nu, Iota, Alpha, Koinonia, of Christ, which according to the same apostle, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, is offered to us in the gospel all believers know. On the contrary, indulgences, bringing forth some portion of the grace of God from the armory of the Pope, fix it to lead, parchment, and a particular place but dissever it from the word of God. When we inquire into the origin of this abuse, it appears to have arisen from this, that when in old times the satisfactions imposed on penitents were too severe to be borne, those who felt themselves burdened beyond measure by the penance imposed petitioned the church for relaxation. The remission so given was called indulgence. But as they transferred satisfactions to God and called them compensations by which men redeemed themselves from the justice of God, they in the same way transferred indulgences, representing them as expiatory remedies which free us from merited punishment. The blasphemies to which we have referred have been feigned with so much effrontery that there is not the least pretext for them. Section 6. Their purgatory cannot now give us much trouble since with this axe we have struck it thrown it down, and overturned it from its very foundations. I cannot agree with some who think that we ought to dissemble in this matter, and make no mention of purgatory, from which, as they say, fierce contests arise, and very little edification can be obtained. I myself would think it right to disregard their follies did they not tend to serious consequences. But since purgatory has been reared on many, and is daily propped up by new blasphemies, since it produces many grievous offenses, assuredly it is not to be connived at, however, 
It might have been disguised for a time that without any authority from the word of God it was devised by prying audacious rashness, that credit was procured for it by fictitious revelations, the wiles of Satan, and that certain passages of scripture were ignorantly wrested to its support. Although the Lord bears not that human presumption should thus force its way to the hidden recesses of his judgments, although he has issued a strict prohibition against neglecting his voice and making inquiry at the dead, Deuteronomy 18 verse 11, and permits not his word to be so erroneously contaminated. Let us grant, however, that all this might have been tolerated for a time as a thing of no great moment. Yet when the expiation of sins is sought elsewhere than in the blood of Christ, and satisfaction is transferred to others, silence were most perilous. We are bound, therefore, to raise our voice to its highest pitch and cry aloud that purgatory is a deadly device of Satan, that it makes void the cross of Christ, that it offers intolerable insult to the divine mercy, that it undermines and overthrows our faith. For what is this purgatory but the satisfaction for sin paid after death by the souls of the dead? Hence, when this idea of satisfaction is refuted, purgatory itself is forthwith completely overturned. But if it is perfectly clear from what was lately said that the blood of Christ is the only satisfaction, expiation, and cleansing for the sins of believers, what remains but to hold that purgatory is mere blasphemy, horrid blasphemy, against Christ? I say nothing of the sacrilege by which it is daily defended, the offenses which it begets in religion, and the other innumerable evils which we see taming forth from that fountain of impiety. Section 7 Those passages of Scripture on which it is their wont falsely and iniquitously to fasten, it may be worthwhile to wrench out of their hands. When the Lord declares that the sin against the Holy Ghost will not be forgiven either in this world or in the world to come, he hereby intimates they say, that there is a remission of certain sins hereafter. But who sees not that the Lord there speaks of the guilt of sin? But if this is so, what has it to do with their purgatory, seeing they deny not that the guilt of those sins, the punishment of which is there expiated, is forgiven in the present life? Lest, however, they should still object, we shall give a plainer solution. Since it was the Lord's intention to cut off all hope of pardon from this flagitious wickedness, he did not consider it enough to say that it would never be forgiven, but in the way of amplification employed a division by which he included both the judgment which every man's conscience pronounces in the present life and the final judgment which will be publicly pronounced at the resurrection. As if he had said, Beware of this malignant rebellion, as you would of instant destruction. For he who of set purpose endeavors to extinguish the offered light of the Spirit shall not obtain pardon either in this life, which has been given to sinners for conversion, or on the last day when the angels of God shall separate the sheep from the goats, and the heavenly kingdom shall be purged of all that offends. The next passage they produce is the parable in Matthew, quote, Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Unquote. Matthew 5, verses 25 and 26. If in this passage the judge means God, the adversary the devil, the officer an angel, and the prison purgatory, I give in at once. 
But if every man sees that Christ there intended to show to how many perils and evils those expose themselves who obstinately insist on their utmost right, instead of being satisfied with what is fair and equitable, that he might therefore the more strongly exhort his followers to concord, where, I asked, are we to find their purgatory? Section 8. They seek an argument in the passage in which Paul declares that all things shall bow the knee to Christ, quote, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, unquote, Philippians 2, verse 10. They take it for granted that by, quote, things under the earth, unquote, cannot be meant those who are doomed to eternal damnation, and that the only remaining conclusion is that they must be souls suffering in purgatory. They would not reason very ill if, by the bending of the knee, the apostle designated true worship. But since he simply says that Christ has received a dominion to which all creatures are subject, what prevents us from understanding those, quote, under the earth, unquote, to mean the devils, who shall certainly be sifted before the judgment seat of God, there to recognize their judge with fear and trembling. In this way, Paul himself elsewhere interprets the same prophecy. Quote, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Unquote. Romans 14, verses 10 and 11. But we cannot in this way interpret what is said in the Apocalypse. Quote, Every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, heard I saying, Blessing and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, for ever and ever." Unquote. Revelation 5, verse 13. This I readily admit. But what kinds of creatures do they suppose are here enumerated? It is absolutely certain that both irrational and inanimate creatures are comprehended. All then which is affirmed is that every part of the universe, from the highest pinnacle of heaven to the very center of the earth, each in its own way proclaims the glory of the Creator. To the passage which they produce from the history of the Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 12, verse 43, I will not deign to reply, lest I should seem to include that work among the canonical books. But Augustine holds it to be canonical. First, with what degree of confidence? Quote, the Jews, unquote, says he, quote, do not hold the book of Maccabees as they do the law, the prophets, and the psalms, to which the Lord bears testimony, as to his own witnesses, saying, Ought not all things which are written in the law, and the psalms, and the prophets, concerning me be fulfilled? Luke 24, verse 44. But it has been received by the church not uselessly, if it be read or heard with soberness, unquote. Jerome, however, unhesitatingly affirms that it is of no authority in establishing doctrine, and from the ancient little book, De Expression Symboli, which bears the name of Cyprian, it is plain that it was in no estimation in the ancient church. And why do I here contend in vain, as if the author himself did not sufficiently show what degree of deference is to be paid him when in the end he asks pardon for anything less properly expressed? Second Maccabees 15, verse 38. He who confesses that his writings stand in need of pardon certainly proclaims that they are not oracles of the Holy Spirit. We may add that the piety of Judas is commended for no other reason than for having a firm hope of the final resurrection and sending his oblation for the dead to Jerusalem. For the writer of the history does not represent what he did as furnishing the price of redemption, but merely that they might be partakers of eternal life with the other saints who had fallen for their country and religion. The act indeed was not free from superstition and misguided zeal. 
but it is mere fatuity to extend the legal sacrifice to us, seeing we are assured that the sacrifices then in use ceased on the advent of Christ. Section 9. But it seems they find in Paul an invincible support which cannot be so easily overthrown. His words are, quote, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and a fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. What fire, they ask, can that be but the fire of purgatory by which the defilements of sin are wiped away in order that we may enter pure into the kingdom of God? But most of the fathers give it a different meaning, viz. the tribulation, or cross, by which the Lord tries his people, that they may not rest satisfied with the defilements of the flesh. This is much more probable than the fiction of a purgatory. I do not, however, agree with them, for I think I see a much surer and clearer meaning to the passage. But before I produce it, I wish they would answer me, whether they think the apostle and all the saints had to pass through this purgatorial fire. I am aware that they will say no, for it were too absurd to hold that purification is required by those whose superfluous merits they dream of as applicable to all the members of the church. But this the apostle affirms, for he says, Not that the works of certain persons, but the works of all, will be tried. And this is not my argument, but that of Augustine, who thus impugns that interpretation. And, what makes the thing more absurd, he says, not that they will pass through fire for certain works, but that even if they should have edified the church with the greatest fidelity, they will receive their reward after their work shall have been tried by fire. First, we see that the apostle used a metaphor when he gave the names of wood, hay, and stubble to the doctrines of man's device. The ground of the metaphor is obvious, viz., that as wood, when it is put into the fire, is consumed and destroyed, so neither will those doctrines be able to endure when they come to be tried. Moreover, everyone sees that the trial is made by the Spirit of God. Therefore, in following out the thread of the metaphor, and adapting its parts properly to each other, he gave the name of the fire to the examination of the Holy Spirit. For just as silver and gold, the nearer they are brought to the fire, give stronger proof of their genuineness and purity, so the Lord's truth, the more thoroughly it is submitted to spiritual examination, has its authority the better confirmed. As hay, wood, and stubble, when the fires apply to them, are suddenly consumed, so the inventions of man, not founded on the word of God, cannot stand the trial of the Holy Spirit, but forthwith give way and perish. In fine, if spurious doctrines are compared to wood, hay, and stubble, because like wood, hay, and stubble they are burned by fire and fitted for destruction, though the actual destruction is only completed by the Spirit of the Lord, it follows that the Spirit is that fire by which they will be proved. This proof Paul calls the day of the Lord, using a term common in Scripture. For the day of the Lord is said to take place whenever he in some way manifests his presence to men, his face being specially said to shine when his truth is manifested. It has now been proved that Paul has no idea of any other fire than the trial of the Holy Spirit. But how are those who suffer the loss of their works saved by fire? This will not be difficult to understand if we consider of what kind of persons he speaks for he designates them builders of the church, who, retaining the proper foundation, build different materials upon it, 
that is, who, not abandoning the principal and necessary articles of faith, err in minor and less perilous manners, mingling their own fictions with the word of God. Such, I say, must suffer the loss of their work by the destruction of their fictions. They themselves, however, are saved, yet so as by fire. That is, not that their ignorance and delusions are approved by the Lord, but they are purified from them by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. All those, accordingly, who have tainted the golden purity of the divine word with the pollution of purgatory must necessarily suffer the loss of their work. Section 10. But the observance of it in the church is of the highest antiquity. This objection is disposed of by Paul when, including even his own age in the sentence, he declares that all who in building the church have laid up something not conformable to the foundation must suffer the loss of their work. When therefore my opponents object that it has been the practice for 1300 years to offer prayers for the dead, I in return ask them, by what word of God, by what revelation, by what example is it done? For here not only are passages of Scripture wanting, but in the examples of all the saints of whom we read, nothing of the kind is seen. We have numerous and sometimes long narratives of their mourning and sepulchral rites, but not one word is said of prayers. But the more important the matter was, the more they ought to have dwelt upon it. Even those who in ancient times offered prayers for the dead saw that they were not supported by the command of God and legitimate example. What then did they presume to do it? I hold that herein they suffered the common lot of man, and therefore maintain that what they did is not to be imitated. Believers ought not to engage in any work without a firm conviction of its propriety, as Paul enjoins. Romans 14, verse 23. And this conviction is expressly requisite in prayer. It is to be presumed, however, that they were influenced by some reason. They sought a solace for their sorrow, and it seemed cruel not to give some attestation of their love to the dead when in the presence of God. All know by experience how natural it is for the human mind thus to feel. Received custom, too, was a kind of torch by which the minds of many were inflamed. We know that among all the Gentiles and in all ages, certain rites were paid to the dead, and that every year lustrations were performed for their manes. Although Satan deluded foolish mortals by these impostures, yet the means of deceiving were borrowed from a sound principle, viz., that death is not destruction, but a passage from this life to another. And there can be no doubt that superstition itself always left the Gentiles without excuse before the judgment seat of God, because they neglected to prepare for that future life which they professed to believe. Thus, that Christians might not seem worse than heathens, they felt ashamed of paying no office to the dead, as if they had been utterly annihilated. Hence, their ill-advised assiduity, because they thought that they would expose themselves to great disgrace if they were slow in providing funeral feasts and oblations. What was thus introduced by perverse rivalship ever and anon received new additions, until the highest holiness of the papacy consisted in giving assistance to the suffering dead. But far better and more solid comfort is furnished by Scripture when it declares, quote, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord, unquote, and adds the reason, quote, For they rest from their labors, unquote. Revelation 14, verse 13. We ought not to indulge our love so far as to set up a perverse mode of prayer in the church. Surely, every person possessed of the least prudence easily perceives that whatever we meet with on this subject in ancient writers was in deference to public custom and the ignorance of the vulgar. I admit they were themselves also carried away into error, the usual effect of rash credulity being to destroy the judgment. 
Meanwhile, the passages themselves show that when they recommended prayer for the dead, it was with hesitation. Augustine relates in his confessions that his mother Monica earnestly entreated to be remembered when the solemn rites at the altar were performed. Doubtless an old woman's wish, which her son did not bring to the test of Scripture, but from natural affection wished others to approve. His book, De Cure Pro Mortuis, Agenda on Showing Care for the Dead, is so full of doubt that its coldness may well extinguish the heat of a foolish zeal. Should any one, in pretending to be a patron of the dead, deal merely in probabilities, the only effect will be to make those indifferent who were formerly solicitous. The only support of this dogma is that as a custom of praying for the dead prevailed, the duty ought not to be despised. But granting that ancient ecclesiastical writers deemed it a pious thing to assist the dead, the rule which can never deceive is always to be observed, viz. that we must not introduce anything of our own into our prayers, but must keep all our wishes in subordination to the word of God, because it belongs to him to prescribe what he wishes us to ask. Now, since the whole law and gospel do not contain one syllable which countenances the right of praying for the dead, it is a profanation of prayer to go one step farther than God enjoins. But lest our opponents boast of sharing their error with the ancient church, I say that there is a wide difference between the two. The latter made a commemoration of the dead, that they might not seem to have cast off all concern for them. But they at the same time acknowledged that they were doubtful as to their state. Assuredly, they made no such assertion concerning purgatory as implied that they did not hold it to be uncertain. The former insist that their dream of purgatory shall be received without question as an article of faith. The latter, sparingly and in a perfunctory manner, only commended their dead to the Lord in the communion of the Holy Supper. The former are constantly urging the care of the dead, and by their importunate preaching of it make out that it is to be preferred to all the offices of charity but it would not be difficult for us to produce some passages from ancient writers which clearly overturn all those prayers for the dead which were then in use such as the passage of augustine in which he shows that the resurrection of the flesh and eternal glory is expected by all but that rest which follows death is received by every one who is worthy of it when he dies Accordingly, he declares that all the righteous, not less than the apostles, prophets, and mortars, immediately after death enjoy blessed rest. If such is their condition, what, I ask, will our prayers contribute to them? I say nothing of those grosser superstitions by which they have fascinated the minds of the simple, and yet they are innumerable, and most of them so monstrous, that they cannot cover them with any cloak of decency." I say nothing, moreover, of those most shameful traffickings which they plied as they listed while the world was stupefied. For I would never come to an end, and without enumerating them, the pious reader will here find enough to establish his conscience. Book 3, Chapter 6 The Life of a Christian Man Scriptural Arguments Exhorting to It There are five sections. Section 1 we have said that the object of regeneration is to bring the life of believers into concord and harmony with the righteousness of God, and so confirm the adoption by which they have been received as sons. But although the law comprehends within it that new life by which the image of God is restored in us, yet, as our sluggishness stands greatly in need both of helps and incentives, it will be useful to collect out of Scripture a true account of this reformation, lest any who have a heartfelt desire of repentance should in their zeal go astray. Moreover, I am not unaware that, in undertaking to describe the life of the Christian, I am entering on a large and extensive subject, 
one which, when fully considered in all its parts, is sufficient to fill a large volume. We see the length to which the fathers, in treating of individual virtues, extend their exhortations. This they do not from mere loquaciousness, for whatever be the virtue which you undertake to recommend, your pen is spontaneously led by the copiousness of the matter so to amplify that you seem not to have discussed it properly if you have not done it at length. My intention, however, in the plan of life which I now propose to give, is not to extend it so far as to treat of each virtue specially and expatiate in exhortation. This must be sought in the writings of others, and particularly in the homilies of the fathers. For me it will be sufficient to point out the method by which a pious man may be taught how to frame his life aright, and to briefly lay down some universal rule by which he may not improperly regulate his conduct. I shall one day possibly find time for more ample discourse, or leave others to perform an office for which I am not so fit. I have a natural love of brevity, and perhaps any attempt of mine at copiousness would not succeed. Even if I could gain the highest applause by being more prolix, I would scarcely be disposed to attempt it. While the nature of my present work requires me to glance at simple doctrine with as much brevity as possible. As philosophers have certain definitions of rectitude and honesty, from which they derive particular duties and the whole train of virtues, so, in this respect, Scripture is not without order, but presents a most beautiful arrangement, one, too, which is every way much more certain than that of philosophers. The only difference is that they, under the influence of ambition, constantly affect an exquisite perspicuity of arrangement, which may serve to display their genius, whereas the Spirit of God, teaching without affectation, is not so perpetually observant of exact method, and yet, by observing it at times sufficiently intimates that it is not to be neglected. Section 2. The Scripture System, of which we speak, aims chiefly at two objects. The former is that the love of righteousness, to which we are by no means naturally inclined, may be instilled and implanted into our minds. The latter is, see chapter 7, to prescribe a rule which will prevent us, while in the pursuit of righteousness, from going astray. It has numerous, admirable methods of recommending righteousness. Many have been already pointed out in different parts of this work. But we shall here also briefly advert to some of them. With what better foundation can it begin than by reminding us that we must be holy, because, quote, God is holy, unquote. Leviticus 19, verse 1, and 1 Peter 1, verse 16. For when we were scattered abroad like lost sheep, wandering through the labyrinth of this world, he brought us back again to his fold. When mention is made of our union with God, let us remember that holiness must be the bond. Not that by the merit of holiness we come into communion with him, we ought rather first to cleave to him, in order that, pervaded with his holiness, we may follow whither he calls, but because it greatly concerns his glory not to have any fellowship with wickedness and impurity. Wherefore he tells us that this is the end of our calling, the end to which we ought ever to have respect, if we would answer the call of God. For to what end were we rescued from the iniquity and pollution of the world into which we were plunged, if we allow ourselves, during our whole lives, to wallow in them? Besides, we are at the same time admonished that if we would be regarded as the Lord's people, we must inhabit the holy city, Jerusalem. Isaiah 35, verse 8, which, as he hath consecrated it to himself, it were impious for its inhabitants to profane by impurity. Hence the expressions, quote, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? 
he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness. Unquote. Psalm 15 verses 1 and 2 and 24 verses 3 and 4. For the sanctuary in which he dwells certainly ought not to be like an unclean stall. Section 3. The better to arouse us, it exhibits God the Father, who, as he hath reconciled us to himself and his anointed, has impressed his image upon us, to which he would have us to be conformed. Romans 5, verse 4. Come then, and let them show me a more excellent system among philosophers, who think that they only have a moral philosophy duly and orderly arranged. They, when they would give excellent exhortations to virtue, can only tell us to live agreeably to nature. Scripture derives its exhortations from the true source, when it not only enjoins us to regulate our lives with a view to God, its author to whom it belongs, but after showing us that we have degenerated from our true origin, viz. the law of our Creator, adds that Christ, through whom we have returned to favor with God, is set before us as a model, the image of which our lives should express. What do you require more effectual than this? Nay, what do you require beyond this? If the Lord adopts us for his sons on the condition that our life be a representation of Christ, the bond of our adoption, then, unless we dedicate and devote ourselves to righteousness, we not only with the utmost perfidy revolt from our Creator, but also abjure the Savior himself. Then, from an enumeration of all the blessings of God and each part of our salvation, it finds materials for exhortation. Ever since God exhibited himself to us as a father, we must be convicted of extreme ingratitude if we do not in turn exhibit ourselves as his sons. Ever since Christ purified us by the labor of his blood and communicated this purification by baptism, it would ill become us to be defiled with new pollution. Ever since he engrafted us into his body, we who are his members should anxiously beware of contracting any stain or taint. Ever since he who is our head ascended to heaven, it is befitting in us to withdraw our affections from the earth, and with our whole soul aspire to heaven. Ever since the Holy Spirit dedicated us as temples to the Lord, we should make it our endeavor to show forth the glory of God, and guard against being profaned by the defilement of sin. Ever since our soul and body were destined to heavenly incorruptibility and an unfading crown, we should earnestly strive to keep them pure and uncorrupted against the day of the Lord. These, I say, are the surest foundations of a well-regulated life, and you will search in vain for anything resembling them among philosophers, who in their commendation of virtue never rise higher than the natural dignity of man. Section 4. This is the place to address those who, having nothing of Christ but the name and sign, would yet be called Christians. How dare they boast of this sacred name? None have intercourse with Christ but those who have acquired the true knowledge of him from the gospel. The apostle denies that any man truly has learned Christ, who has not learned to put off, quote, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and put on Christ, unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 22. They are convicted, therefore, of falsely and unjustly pretending a knowledge of Christ, whatever be the volubility and eloquence with which they can talk of the gospel. Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life is not apprehended by the intellect and memory merely like other branches of learning, but is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds its seat and habitation in the inmost recesses of the heart. Let them therefore either cease to insult God by boasting that they are what they are not, or let them show themselves not unworthy disciples of their divine master. To doctrine in which our religion is contained, we have given the first place, since by it our salvation commences. 
but it must be transfused into the breast and pass into the conduct and so transform us into itself as not to prove unfruitful. If philosophers are justly offended and banish from their company with disgrace those who, while professing an art which ought to be the mistress of their conduct, convert it into mere loquacious sophistry, with how much better reason shall we detest those flimsy sophists who are contented to let the gospel play upon their lips when, from its efficacy, it ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, fix its seat in the soul, and pervade the whole man a hundred times more than the frigid discourses of philosophers. Section 5 I insist not that the life of the Christian shall breathe nothing but the perfect gospel, though this is to be desired and ought to be attempted. I insist not so strictly on evangelical perfection as to refuse to acknowledge as a Christian any man who has not attained it. In this way all would be excluded from the church, since there is no man who is not far removed from this perfection, while many who have made but little progress would be undeservedly rejected. What then? Let us set this before our eye as the end at which we ought constantly to aim, that it be regarded as the goal towards which we are to run. For you cannot divide the matter with God, undertaking part of what his word enjoins, and omitting part at pleasure. For in the first place God uniformly recommends integrity as the principal part of his worship, meaning by integrity real singleness of mind, devoid of gloss and fiction, and to this is opposed a double mind as if it had been said that the spiritual commencement of a good life is when the internal affections are sincerely devoted to God in the cultivation of holiness and justice. But seeing that in this earthly prison of the body no man is supplied with strength sufficient to hasten in his course with due alacrity, while the greater number are so oppressed with weakness that hesitating and halting and even crawling on the ground they make little progress, that every one of us go as far as his humble ability enables him and prosecute the journey once begun. No one will travel so badly as not daily to make some degree of progress. This, therefore, let us never cease to do, that we may daily advance in the way of the Lord, and let us not despair because of the slender measure of success. How little soever the success may correspond with our wish, our labor is not lost when today is better than yesterday, provided with true singleness of mind we keep our aim and aspire to the goal, not speaking flattering things to ourselves nor indulging our vices, but making it our constant endeavor to become better until we attain to goodness itself. If during the whole course of our life we seek and follow, we shall at length attain it when relieved from the infirmity of flesh, we are admitted to full fellowship with God. Book 3, Chapter 7, A Summary of the Christian Life of Self-Denial There are ten sections. Section 1. Although the law of God contains a perfect rule of conduct admirably arranged, it has seemed proper to our Divine Master to train His people by a more accurate method to the rule which is enjoined in the law. And the leading principle in the method is that it is the duty of believers to present their, quote, bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is their reasonable service, unquote, Romans 12, verse 1. Hence he draws the exhortation, quote, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, unquote. The great point, then, is that we are consecrated and dedicated to God, and therefore should not henceforth think, speak, design, or act without a view to His glory. What He hath made sacred cannot, without signal insult to Him, be applied to profane use. But if we are not our own, but the Lord's, it is plain both what error is to be shunned and to what end the actions of our lives ought to be directed. 
We are not our own, therefore neither is our own reason our will to rule our acts and counsels. We are not our own, therefore let us not make it our end to seek what may be agreeable to our carnal nature. We are not our own, therefore as far as possible let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand, we are God's. Let us therefore live and die to him. Romans 14 verse 8 We are God's, therefore let his wisdom and will preside over all our actions. We are God's, to him then, as the only legitimate end, let every part of our life be directed. Oh, how great the proficiency of him who, taught that he is not his own, has withdrawn the dominion and government of himself from his own reason, that he may give them to God. For as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Let this then be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. By service I mean not only that which consists in verbal obedience, but that by which the mind, divested of its own carnal feelings, implicitly obeys the call of the Spirit of God. This transformation, which Paul calls the renewing of the mind, Romans 12, verse 2, and Ephesians 4, verse 23, though it is the first entrance to life, was unknown to all the philosophers. They give the government of man to reason alone, thinking that she alone is to be listened to. In short, they assign to her the sole direction of the conduct. But Christian philosophy bids her give place and yield complete submission to the Holy Spirit, so that the man himself no longer lives, but Christ lives and reigns in him. Galatians 2, verse 20. Section 2. Hence follows the other principle that we are not to seek our own, but the Lord's will, and act with a view to promote his glory. Great is our proficiency when, almost forgetting ourselves, certainly postponing our own reason, we faithfully make it our study to obey God and his commandments. For when Scripture enjoins us to lay aside private regard to ourselves, it not only divests our minds of an excessive longing for wealth, our power, our human favor, but eradicates all ambition and thirst for worldly glory and other more secret pests. The Christian ought indeed to be so trained and disposed as to consider that during his whole life he has to do with God. For this reason, as he will bring all things to the disposal and estimate of God, so he will religiously direct his whole mind to him. For he who has learned to look to God in everything he does is at the same time diverted from all vain thoughts. This is that self-denial which Christ so strongly enforces on his disciples from the very outset. Matthew 16, verse 24 which, as soon as it takes hold of the mind, leaves no place either first for pride, show, and ostentation, or secondly for avarice, lust, luxury, effeminacy, or other vices which are engendered by self-love. On the contrary, wherever it rains not, the foulest vices are indulged in with shame, or if there is some appearance of virtue, it is vitiated by a depraved longing for applause. Show me, if you can, an individual who, unless he has renounced himself in obedience to the Lord's command, is disposed to do good for its own sake. Those who have not so renounced themselves have followed virtue at least for the sake of praise. The philosophers who have contended most strongly that virtue is to be desired on her own account were so inflated with arrogance as to make it apparent that they sought virtue for no other reason than as a ground for indulging in pride. So far, therefore, is God from being delighted with these hunters after popular applause with their swollen breasts, that he declares they have received their reward in this world, Matthew 6, verse 2, and that harlots and publicans are nearer the kingdom of heaven than they, Matthew 21, verse 31. 
We have not yet sufficiently explained how great and numerous are the obstacles by which a man is impeded in the pursuit of rectitude so long as he has not renounced himself. The old saying is true, there is a world of iniquity treasured up in the human soul. Nor can you find any other remedy for this than to deny yourself, renounce your own reason, and direct your whole mind to the pursuit of those things which the Lord requires of you and which you are to seek only because they are pleasing to Him. Section 3 In another passage, Paul gives a brief, indeed, but more distinct account of each of the parts of a well-ordered life. Quote, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearance of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Unquote. Titus 2, verses 11-14. After holding forth the grace of God to animate us and pave the way for his true worship, he removes the two greatest obstacles which stand in the way, viz. ungodliness, to which we are by nature too prone, and worldly lusts, which are of still greater extent. Under ungodliness he includes not merely superstition, but everything at variance with the true fear of God. Worldly lusts are equivalent to the lusts of the flesh. Thus he enjoins us in regard to both tables of the law to lay aside our own mind and renounce whatever our own reason and will dictate. Then he reduces all the actions of our lives to three branches, sobriety, righteousness, and godliness. Sobriety undoubtedly denotes as well chastity and temperance as the pure and frugal use of temporal goods and patient endurance of want. Righteousness comprehends all the duties of equity in rendering to every one his due. Next follows godliness, which separates us from the pollutions of the world and connects us with God and true holiness. These, when connected together by an indissoluble chain, constitute complete perfection. But as nothing is more difficult than to bid adieu to the will of the flesh, subdue, nay, abjure our lusts, devote ourselves to God and our brethren, and lead an angelic life amid the pollutions of the world, Paul, to set our minds free from all entanglements, recalls us to the hope of a blessed immortality, justly urging us to contend because as Christ has once appeared as our Redeemer, so on his final advent he will give full effect to the salvation obtained by him. And in this way he dispels all the allurements which becloud our path and prevent us from aspiring as we ought to heavenly glory. Nay, he tells us that we must be pilgrims in the world, that we may not fail of obtaining the heavenly inheritance. Section 4. Moreover, we see by these words that self-denial has respect partly to men and partly, more especially, to God. Sections 8 through 10. For when Scripture enjoins us, in regard to our fellow men, to prefer them in honor to ourselves and sincerely labor to promote our advantage, Romans 12 verse 10 and Philippians 2 verse 3, he gives us commands which our mind is utterly incapable of obeying until its natural feelings are suppressed. For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. If God has bestowed on us something not to be repented of, trusting to it, we immediately become elated and not only swell but almost burst with pride. The vices with which we abound, we both carefully conceal from others and flatteringly represent to ourselves as minute and trivial, nay, sometimes hug them as virtues. When the same qualities which we admire in ourselves are seen in others, even though they should be superior, we, in order that we may not be forced to yield to them, maliciously lower and carpet them. 
In like manner, in the case of vices not contented with severe and keen animadversion, we studiously exaggerate them. Hence the insolence with which each, as if exempted from the common lot, seeks to exalt himself above his neighbor, confidently and proudly despising others, or at least looking down upon them as his inferiors. The poor man yields to the rich, the plebeian to the noble, the servant to the master, the unlearned to the learned, and yet every one inwardly cherishes some idea of his own superiority. Thus each flattering himself sets up a kind of kingdom in his breast. The arrogant, to satisfy themselves, pass censure on the minds and manners of other men, and when contention arises, the full venom is displayed. Many bear about with them some measure of mildness so long as all things go smoothly and lovingly with them. But how few are there who, when stung and irritated, preserve the same tenor of moderation? For this there is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests, self-love and love of victory. Hebrew words, Phi, Iota, Lambda, Omicron, Nu, Eta, Iota, Chi, Iota, Alpha, Chi, Alpha, Iota, Phi, Iota, Lambda, Alpha, Epsilon, Tau, Iota, Alpha, Philonechia, K, Philotia. This the doctrine of Scripture does, for it teaches us to remember that the endowments which God has bestowed upon us are not our own, but His free gifts, and that those who plume themselves upon them betray their ingratitude. Quote, who maketh thee to differ, unquote, saith Paul. Quote, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Then, by a diligent examination of our faults, let us keep ourselves humble. Thus, while nothing will remain to swell our pride, there will be much to subdue it. Again, we are enjoined, whenever we behold the gifts of God and others, so to reverence and respect the gifts, as also to honor those in whom they reside. God, having been pleased to bestow honor upon them, it would ill become us to deprive them of it. Then we are told to overlook their faults, not indeed to encourage by flattering them, but not because of them to insult those whom we ought to regard with honor and goodwill. In this way, with regard to all with whom we have intercourse, our behavior will be not only moderate and modest, but courteous and friendly. The only way by which you can ever attain to true meekness is to have your heart imbued with a humble opinion of yourself and respect for others. Section 5. How difficult is it to perform the duty of seeking the good of our neighbor? Unless you leave off all thought of yourself and in a manner cease to be yourself, you will never accomplish it. How can you exhibit those works of charity which Paul describes unless you renounce yourself and become wholly devoted to others? Quote, charity, says he in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, unquote, etc., were it the only thing required of us to seek not our own, nature would not have the least power to comply. She so inclines us to love ourselves only that she will not easily allow us carelessly to pass by ourselves and our own interests, that we may watch over the interests of others, nay, spontaneously to yield our own right and resign it to another. But Scripture, to conduct us to this, reminds us that whatever we obtain from the Lord is granted on the condition of our employing it for the common good of the church, and that therefore the legitimate use of all our gifts is a kind and liberal communication of them with others. 
that cannot be a surer rule, nor a stronger exhortation to the observance of it, than when we are taught that all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. That scripture proceeds still farther when it likens these endowments to the different members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. No member has its function for itself, or applies it for its own private use, but transfers it to its fellow members. Nor does it derive any other advantage from it than that which it receives in common with the whole body. Thus, whatever the pious man can do, he is bound to do for his brethren, not consulting his own interest in any way than by striving earnestly for the common edification of the church. Let this then be our method of showing goodwill and kindness, considering that in regard to everything which God has bestowed upon us, and by which we can aid our neighbor, we are his stewards, and are bound to give account of our stewardship. Moreover, that the only right mode of administration is that which is regulated by love. In this way, we shall not only unite the study of our neighbor's advantage with a regard to our own, but make the latter subordinate to the former. And lest we should have omitted to perceive that this is the law for duly administering every gift which we receive from God, he of old applied that law to the minutest expressions of his own kindness. He commanded the first fruits to be offered to him as an attestation by the people that it was impious to reap any advantage from goods not previously consecrated to him. Exodus 22 verse 29 and 23 verse 19. But if the gifts of God are not sanctified to us until we have our own hand dedicated them to the giver, it must be a gross abuse that does not give signs of such dedication. It is in vain to contend that you cannot enrich the Lord by your offerings. Though, as the psalmist says, quote, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not unto thee, unquote. yet you can extend it, quote, to the saints that are in the earth, unquote. Psalm 16, verses 2 and 3. And therefore comparison is drawn between sacred oblations and alms as now corresponding to the offerings under the law. Section 6. Moreover, that we may not weary in well-doing, as would otherwise forthwith and infallibly be the case, we must add the other quality in the Apostles' enumeration, quote, Charity suffereth long, and is kind, and is not easily provoked, unquote, 1 Corinthians 13.4. The Lord enjoins us to do good to all without exception, though the greater part, if estimated by their own merit, are most unworthy of it. But Scripture subjoins a most excellent reason when it tells us that we are not to look to what men and themselves deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in all, and to which we owe all honor and love. But in those who are of the household of faith, the same rule is to be more carefully observed, inasmuch as that image is renewed and restored in them by the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, whoever be the man that is presented to you as needing your assistance, you have no ground for declining to give it to him. Say he is a stranger. The Lord has given him a mark which ought to be familiar to you, for which reason he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Galatians 6 verse 10. Say he is mean and of no consideration. The Lord points him out as one whom he has distinguished by the luster of his own image. Isaiah 58 verse 7. Say that you are bound to him by no ties of duty. The Lord has substituted him, as it were, into his own place that in him you may recognize the many great obligations under which the Lord has laid you to himself. Say that he is unworthy of your least exertion on his account, but the image of God by which he is recommended to you is worthy of yourself and all your exertions. But if he not only merits no good, but has provoked you by injury and mischief, still this is no good reason why you should not embrace him in love and visit him with offices of love. He has deserved very differently from me, you will say, but what has the Lord deserved? 
whatever injury he has done you, when he enjoins you to forgive him, he certainly means that it should be imputed to himself. In this way only we attain to what is not to say difficult, but altogether against nature, to love those that hate us, render good for evil, and blessing for cursing, remembering that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but look to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. Section 7. We shall thus succeed in mortifying ourselves if we fulfill all the duties of charity. Those duties, however, are not fulfilled by the mere discharge of them, though none be omitted, unless it is done from a pure feeling of love. For it may happen that one may perform every one of these offices, insofar as the external act is concerned, and be far from performing them aright. For you see some who would be thought very liberal, and yet accompany everything they give with insult by the haughtiness of their looks or the violence of their words. And to such a calamitous condition have we come in this unhappy age, that the greater part of men never almost give alms without contumely. Such conduct ought not to have been tolerated even among the heathen. But from Christians something more is required than to carry cheerfulness in their looks, and give attractiveness to the discharge of their duties by courteous language. First they should put themselves in the place of him whom they see in need of their assistance, and pity his misfortune as if they felt and bore it, so that a feeling of pity and humanity should incline them to assist him just as they would themselves. He who is thus minded will go and give assistance to his brethren, and not only not taint his acts with arrogance and upbraiding, but will neither look down upon the brother to whom he does a kindness, as one who needed his help, or keep him in subjection, as under obligation to him, just as we do not insult a diseased member when the rest of the body labors for its recovery, nor think it under special obligation to the other members, because it has required more exertion than it has returned. A communication of offices between members is not regarded as at all gratuitous, but rather as the payment of that which being due by the law of nature it were monstrous to deny. For this reason he who has performed one kind of duty will not think himself thereby discharged, as is usually the case when a rich man, after contributing somewhat of his substance, delegates remaining burdens to others as if he had nothing to do with them. Every one should rather consider that however great he is, he owes himself to his neighbors, and that the only limit to his beneficence is the failure of his means. The extent of these should regulate that of his charity. Section 8. The principal part of self-denial, that which we have said, has reference to God, let us again consider more fully. Many things have already been said with regard to it, which it were superfluous to repeat, and therefore it will be sufficient to view it as forming us to equanimity and endurance. First, then, in seeking the convenience or tranquility of the present life, Scripture calls us to resign ourselves and all we have to the disposal of the Lord, to give him up the affections of the heart, that he may tame and subdue them. We have a frenzied desire, an infinite eagerness, to pursue wealth and honor, intrigue for power, accumulate riches, and collect all those frivolities which seem conducive to luxury and splendor. On the other hand, we have a remarkable dread, a remarkable hatred of poverty, mean birth, and a humble condition, and feel the strongest desire to guard against them. Hence, in regard to those who frame their life after their own counsel, we see how restless they are in mind, how many plans they try, to what fatigues they submit, in order that they may gain what avarice or ambition desires, or, on the other hand, escape poverty and meanness. To avoid similar entanglements, the course which Christian men must follow is this. First, they must not long for, or hope for, or think of any kind of prosperity apart from the blessing of God. On it they must cast themselves and there safely and confidently recline. 
for, however much the carnal mind may seem sufficient for itself, when in the pursuit of honor or wealth, it depends on its own industry and zeal, or is aided by the favor of men. It is certain that all this is nothing, and that neither intellect nor labor will be of the least avail, except insofar as the Lord prospers both. On the contrary, his blessing alone makes a way through all obstacles and brings everything to a joyful and favorable issue. Secondly, though without this blessing we may be able to acquire some degree of fame and opulence, as we daily see wicked men loaded with honors and riches, yet since those on whom the curse of God lies do not enjoy the least particle of true happiness, whatever we obtain without his blessing must turn out ill, but surely men ought not to desire what adds to their misery. Section 9. Therefore, if we believe that all prosperous and desirable success depends entirely on the blessing of God, and that when it is wanting all kinds of misery and calamity await us, it follows that we should not eagerly contend for riches and honors, trusting to our own dexterity and assiduity, or leaning on the favor of men, or confiding in any empty imagination of fortune, but should always have respect to the Lord, that under his auspices we may be conducted to whatever lot he has provided for us. First, the result will be that instead of rushing on, regardless of right and wrong, by wiles and wicked arts, and with injury to our neighbors, to catch at wealth and seize upon honors, we will only follow such fortune as we may enjoy with innocence. Who can hope for the aid of the divine blessing amid fraud, rapine, and other iniquitous arts? As this blessing attends him only who thinks purely and acts uprightly, so it calls off all who long for it from sinister designs and evil actions. Secondly, a curb will be laid upon us, restraining a too eager desire of becoming rich, or an ambitious striving after honor. How can anyone have the effrontery to expect that God will aid him in accomplishing desires at variance with his word? What God with his own lips pronounces cursed never can be prosecuted with his blessing. Lastly, if our success is not equal to our wish and hope, we shall, however, be kept from impatience and detestation of our condition, whatever it be, knowing that so to feel were to murmur against God, at whose pleasure riches and poverty, contempt and honors are dispensed. In short, he who leans on the divine blessing in the way which has been described will not, in the pursuit of those things which men are wont most eagerly to desire, employ wicked arts which he knows would avail him nothing. Nor when anything prosperous befalls him, will he impute it to himself in his own diligence, or industry, or fortune, instead of ascribing it to God as its author. If, while the affairs of others flourish, his make little progress or even retrograde, he will bear his humble lot with greater equanimity and moderation than any irreligious man does the moderate success, which only falls short of what he wished. For he has a solace in which he can rest more tranquility than at the very summit of wealth or power, because he considers that his affairs are ordered by the Lord in the manner most conducive to his salvation. This, we see, is the way in which David was affected, who, while he follows God and gives up himself to his guidance, declares, quote, Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. Unquote. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. Section 10. Nor is it in this respect only that pious minds ought to manifest this tranquility and endurance. It must be extended to all the accidents to which this present life is liable. He alone, therefore, has properly denied himself, who has resigned himself entirely to the Lord, placing all the course of his life entirely at his disposal. Happen what may, he whose mind is thus composed will neither deem himself wretched or murmur against God because of his lot. How necessary this disposition is will appear if you consider the many accidents to which we are liable. Various diseases ever and anon attack us. At one time pestilence rages. 
At another, we are involved in all the calamities of war. Frost and hail, destroying the promise of the year, cause sterility, which reduces us to penury. Wife, parents, children, relatives are carried off by death. Our house is destroyed by fire. These are the events which make men curse their life, detest the day of their birth, execrate the light of heaven, even censure God, and, as they are eloquent in blasphemy, charge him with cruelty and injustice. The believer must in these things also contemplate the mercy and truly paternal indulgence of God. Accordingly, should he see his house by the removal of kindred reduced to solitude, even he will not cease to bless the Lord. His thought will be, Still the grace of the Lord, which dwells within my house, will not leave it desolate. If his crops are blasted, mildewed, are cut off by frost, are struck down by hail, he sees famine before him. He will not, however, despond or murmur against God, but maintain his confidence in him. Quote, we thy people and sheep of thy pasture will give thee thanks forever. Unquote. Psalm 79, verse 13. He will supply me with food, even in the extreme of sterility. If he is afflicted with disease, the sharpness of the pain will not so overcome him as to make him break out with impatience and expostulate with God, but recognizing justice and lenity in the rod will patiently endure. In short, whatever happens, knowing that it is ordered by the Lord, he will receive it with a placid and grateful mind, and will not contumaciously resist the government of him, at whose disposal he has placed himself and all that he has. Especially let the Christian breast eschew that foolish and most miserable consolation of the heathen, who, to strengthen their mind against adversity, imputed it to fortune, at which they deemed it absurd to feel indignant, as she was, Greek word, Alpha, Sigma, Chi, Omicron, Pi, Omicron, Sigma, Hoskopos, aimless, and rash, and blindly wounded the good equally with the bad. On the contrary, the rule of piety is that the hand of God is the ruler and arbiter of the fortunes of all, and instead of rushing on with thoughtless violence, dispenses good and evil with perfect regularity. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, 
etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.